Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Ficini. We're presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, I've got Danny LaRue. We're going to talk about the NBA Finals, how they ended with the Los Angeles Lakers winning the 2020 NBA Championship in six games over the Miami Heat. Then, as this show tends to be wont to do, we want to look forward as opposed to discussing backward. We want to discuss... Uh, the offseason for every NBA team in the league and discuss where these teams are going now. So the best way to do that that I've come up with is over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to dive deep into every division and we're going to break out every team within their divisions. So today we're going to do the Pacific Division and the offseason preview for the Los Angeles Lakers, Los Angeles Clippers, Phoenix Suns, Sacramento Kings and Golden State Warriors. And then throughout the rest of the week, I'll probably do an Eastern Conference team and then a Western Conference team and switch back and forth each time. So, uh, Danny, how are you doing, man? How, how are things over there in the back? Things are good. It is thankfully not smoky at the moment, so that that's nice. Um, and it's it's kind of surreal for this season to be over. It was in that weird state for a period of time where it was you know in hiatus, and so we didn't think it was over, but didn't really know how it was going to go. But for the bubble to have worked out so well, to have a to have a clean resolution, to have a deserving champion after all this, it it's very fulfilling. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, I am on some level really happy that one of the three teams that everyone thought was one of the clear favorites going in, the Lakers, Clippers, and Bucks, ended up winning the title. Those were the three teams that were the best throughout the course of the pre-hiatus season. And it makes me feel like the bubble was an even greater success that we got uh one of the dominant teams to end up coming up with a win, even though throughout the bubble... We had some real excitement, like Denver making the conference finals, like the Miami Heat obviously going to the NBA finals. Uh, it was a real accomplishment, I think, for the NBA. And I think that the Players Association, the NBA itself, Adam Silver, Michelle Roberts, uh, Chris Paul is obviously a leader on the player side, LeBron James. Everyone who played a little role, you know, from the Disney workers that were within the bubble to uh, even the highest end people such as LeBron James and Anthony Davis that we watched yesterday win a title. Uh, it really is an accomplishment. And I think that that is deserving of a lot of credit. Absolutely. And they were able to, they meaning the players, but also coaches and everybody else to, to also wield the opportunity to help spread messages. And we'll see how that, how that affects the conversations moving forward. And, also, that we got really high-end basketball. It was definitely different. Like, I, I wonder how much of bubble basketball is going to carry over, but it was definitely exciting. I mean, going back to those, the high offense games in the in the, in the the seeding games, and then that crazy Nuggets-Jazz series in the first round, and then, you know, each series took on a different tenor, and it was it was a lot of fun and i'm extremely thankful that it worked out as well as it did and i echo your your appreciation for every person who made that happen and there were a lot of people that did i mean you could go into like the people who made the food and everything else like there's it's it was an incredible undertaking and i'm so thrilled that it went this well and i hope that the league doesn't have to do this again but if they do now they have the experience to to kind of go through it again and look like 
I've been sitting here quarantined in a hotel room in Sydney now for about a week. Uh, NBA players had to quarantine within a bubble, obviously, and within a campus. So, like, I literally can't leave my room, so it's kind of different. But it really is impressive to me that we really only had the one singular Daniel House incident uh, from NBA players here. Uh, Just being willing to go with the uh, necessary arrangement in all of the precautions that we've seen uh, over the course of the last three months, like that is a long time to be essentially held down and not allowed to really do much. So I'm, I think that the players deserve a lot of credit here too, for being as willing and as open and as engaged as they were and making sure that they were doing the right things. Oh, absolutely. And I would extend that to the coaches, the staffs, and the referees. I mean, there were a lot of major changes that that people had to go through. And the players, you know, their their work performance, they're they're accountable in a different way than everybody else. But and so that that leads to them being the focus of the conversation. But you know, like there were a lot of people whose lives were uprooted. And then there's the other side of the equation as well, where the people you know who their their families that were without people in their family. And so yeah, it's it was a big undertaking, and we end, ended up with a a really fascinating NBA Finals. I am again excited that after I mean I was pretty dejected after game one I mean to be completely honest I was you know after the great run that Miami had had to get through it and it looked like you know Bam wasn't going to be himself for the rest of the series Goran Dragic was probably going to be out because he had a torn plantar fascia to have this be as competitive a series as it became largely due to Jimmy Butler's incandescence and Spolstra and you know the teammates really stepping up I, that that was great. Like you know, the the Lakers still won, but it being a six game series that had some real fight to it. Game five was an absolute classic. Made it so much better. Yeah, I saw someone uh, online. I forget who it is. I'm sorry. Uh, during one of these games, called Jimmy Butler the junkyard superstar. And that was one of my favorite things I've seen in a while, because that's just who he is. Like, he is uh, this guy that's just going to go to battle every time. He's going to do all the gritty and grimy work, and he's going to defend, and he's going to just kind of effort his way into being uh, effective every single game. And even though in game six, where he was, I I think he was tired. Like, I really think that after having played almost 48 minutes in game five, he was wiped. He still ended up with like 12 points, seven assists and six rebounds and was relatively effective over the course of that game. He just was very tired at the end of it. And it's really interesting to juxtapose Jimmy Butler, who is this guy that we, you know, kind of put all of these great, words upon right in terms of his effort and his energy levels and the fact that he never seems to uh, give up in terms of energy and then you juxtapose that to LeBron James and LeBron James and his incredible unbelievable consistency of excellence it's impossible to me that people take this guy for granted LeBron James had to go through an entire bubble here. He had to, similarly to the things that we just talked about, uh, 
be with his teammates uh, within a bubble situation over the course of multiple months away from his family. Uh, had to kind of fight through adversity in s- some regard here. Like, look, I-, I don't know that the Lakers were going through much more adversity necessarily than the normal team. But LeBron James in the NBA Finals, despite being relatively tired, averaged 30 points, 12 rebounds, and eight and a half assists. In game six, he went for 28, 14, and 10. In game five, which I thought was even better, he went for 40, 13, and seven. Game four, he went for 28, 12, and eight. Like, what this guy did in the playoffs, it it just shows how different of a level it is with LeBron versus even someone like Jimmy Butler, who is a top 10 player in the league. Like, Jimmy Butler is a great player. LeBron James is something that I don't know that we're going to see again at any time soon. Like people can bring up Luca. They can bring up Giannis Antetokounmpo. Some of the great young players that we have in the league, like Anthony Davis, I think is deserving of being in that conversation as well. But God, just the sheer consistency of every single time game in game out night in night out. He's the same dude every single time that that's impossible to me. It's it is a truly incredible accomplishment, and uh, I was thinking about this. Nate and I recorded dunked on on Sunday night after the game, and LeBron. There will be a lot of comparison inevitably, and I'm not going to criticize it between you know LeBron and Michael Jordan. And to me, at this point, there is a top two, and we can discuss the order. But I, I think that James' resume now is beyond everybody else, you know, beyond my, other than Michael Jordan. So it's like, okay, we can have that conversation. But well, I think their legacies are decidedly different, not in a positive or negative way, but something that LeBron will have, and MJ supporters will say MJ never had to, and that's a completely fair point, is that he, not only has he had to be the man in a lot of, uh, like you know, like every single time, both of those guys had to shoulder a big burden there, but doing that, in basically three different franchises, but you could say four different iterations. So you have those those early Cavs teams where they were extremely LeBron-driven, and then you had the the Miami Heat teams, and then the return to the Cavs, and, and now the Lakers. And while Anthony Davis, an amazing teammate, and I think that you can make this argument for both of those, that both these players, but part of the degree of difficulty, and this is why superstars are superstars, is that the Lakers' structure required excellence from LeBron and, and from Davis to an extent because their other players couldn't really take on that much more. You know, Rondo had some nice games. Danny Green hit some threes at moments. KCP, I thought, had some really nice games in the finals as well. But they can't be the straw that serves the drink. There were only two potential guys for that on the Lakers. And so that meant that those guys had a lot on their shoulders, and they delivered. I mean— I, I would make the argument that LeBron and Anthony Davis, not only were they the two best players in the finals, not that Jimmy Butler's performance is gets any denigration, but LeBron and AD, and then I would say Butler's probably third, were the, they were the two best players in the entire playoffs. And to have yeah. those two guys on the same team is absolutely incredible. Yeah, I mean, Anthony Davis's consistency, particularly on the defensive end, was ridiculous. What AD did, I mean, you look at Miami's shot charts, like, they don't want to just be taking threes and like shots from the free throw line. You look at their shot charts, like they couldn't go inside and take shots. Basically anytime Kendrick Nunn tried to drive because Kendrick was the only one that was, I don't even want to say fearless enough. Like I want to say almost 
foolhardy enough to try and drive in and score at the basket. Uh, Anthony Davis is just swatting the shit out of him. Like, it well, and, was... and not only that, but in, in game six, there was the huge dynamic of the turnovers. There were a series of turnovers in the first half. So Miami had yep. nine total. And I think a lot of those, from what I recall, were circumstances where originally the guy drove and was going to, in a normal circumstance, probably would have tried the shot himself, thought better of the shot, then tried to pass it, but Anthony Davis is there for the pass, so it became a turnover, and then that fueled the Lakers' transition offense. And I actually believe that, you know, if I had a vote, I actually would have voted for Anthony Davis for finals MVP because they were both important offensively, and LeBron's contributions on on both ends should not be discounted. But we saw the kind of the on-off disparity in the Lakers' defense pretty prominently in this series. I mean, when AD wasn't right physically, when he was unavailable due to foul trouble, those were the moments where the Lakers looked most vulnerable. And I thought that Davis was really that guy. You know, he was affecting things. And also, think about the double that Frank Vogel asked Davis to do in the in the late in this game was in game six so they took out Dwight Howard from the starting lineup so he had to be a catch-all while also typically being the primary defender on Bam Adebayo and oftentimes Miami does a beautiful job with their offense of putting Bam in a place where that's very difficult to do and I thought that Davis was affecting everything Bam also didn't look right physically but some of that was also Anthony Davis being a monster and so I, I hope that because he didn't win finals MVP and LeBron was unanimous and blah, 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 that Davis's contribution, you know, usually I think that the contributions of players who are not the best player on their championship team get overstated, like they get too much championship shine. But Davis might be the rare exception where because technically he might have been the second best player in his own team, but also the second best player in the playoffs, he might actually get too little because his championships added was massive in this in this playoffs. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, we're, we're talking about a Lakers team where Contavious Caldwell-Pope is now going to go down in history as being the third best player on a title team. Like, that's yeah. a thing that's going to happen now because Contavious Caldwell-Pope was their third best player throughout the course of this year and throughout the course of this series, to be sure. Uh, maybe you can make a case for Rondo. I think I'd probably go with KCP if only just because uh, his defensive ability is just much stronger than Rondo. Oh, yeah. I mean, you saw that in Duncan Robinson's comparatively muted impact in a lot of the series. Like, KCP did a good job, not exclusively, but of taking him away. And Rondo, basically the Lakers' structure allowed Rondo's inconsistency to be okay. Like his highs were high enough to be real, to be really important. But when Rondo wasn't really feeling it, okay, great. LeBron James and Anthony Davis can, can initiate the offense, can, can make a lot of things happen. And they also had, you know, Caruso and, and various other players to kind of check that box. And, but Rondo deserves a lot of credit. The biggest change that happened for him was in the Houston series where Rondo's defensive effort has been in a permanent wane, basically, for about three years now. And something kicked in in that Houston series, and he's played the best defense that he has in a long time. And yep. a lot of that was effort-based. And he you know, did a great job on James Harden in the second round, and then he was very disruptive on both ends of the floor in the in the Denver series, and then he was great in, in serious moments in the final. So I would say, to me, there isn't... KCP is a pretty clear number three, but Rondo, like, what, what the Lakers structure allowed for... 
was as long as basically somebody other than their best players was doing well, that was probably enough, especially when the Heat were shorthanded. And so that meant games like Game 5, it, that wasn't quite enough because every one of those guys was bad. But generally speaking, and, and that's that's what the biggest benefit, I mean, the idea of why you need an MVP caliber player to win a championship in the, in the modern NBA is because that is what gives you the latitude for inconsistency of your sport players. Whereas if, let's say, I don't know, Denver or even the Rockets to an extent, like if, if, if they, they needed more from the other guys to make it work. Yeah, and I only bring up these guys and trying to like list them and rank them in order to show just how dominant Anthony Davis needed to be. Right, right. Like, I mean, you could compare compare them to the third best player. Even so, like the Raptors last year, their third best player was Pascal Siakam, who made Pascal. All NBA this year. Right, and their you know their their depth was was incredible. I mean, it, I mean you could, I mean to have Kawhi and Lowry and their talented big men, and they that they could go you know with with Abaka and Gasol and like so many guys that were that are so much more complete basketball players than what the Lakers went with, and that is testament to LeBron and to to AD and also to a bunch of talented players, many of whom are kind of not in their prime. You know, like Dwight Howard's a great example of this yeah. being more okay than I could have expected sometimes with with that sort of a role you know that Dwight Howard wasn't going to get his extra post-ups he wasn't going to get he wasn't even necessarily going to get reliable minutes but he looked so much better physically this year which was a a great thing to see considering like I mean I think that with Dwight the everything that happened after Orlando made people some sometimes forget how incredible he was before that oh no he was genuinely one of like the three best players in the NBA in Orlando. Like, it was the, it was not even a question. It is it is weird that there will be some people and I'm not sure they're like voters that this will cement Dwight Howard's Hall of Fame case when that was cemented a half decade ago. Yeah, like to me this should not change Dwight Howard. Like and let's let's actually move into something I wanted to do with you to just kind of close out this uh this Lakers loop, right? And to just play the legacy game in terms of what does this mean for all of the Lakers guys. And we can start with Dwight Howard. Like, I don't think this really changes much for Dwight. I think he was a Hall of Famer beforehand. I think he's still a Hall of Famer now. Uh, I don't know that a season where he averaged seven points and seven rebounds and came off the bench for the Lakers should really make much of a difference, even though it ended in him achieving a championship as, like, their eighth best player on the team. Yeah, I largely agree with you. Though I'm, I am really happy that it happened yeah, all the same. You know, like it's, totally I don't agree. think I don't think it's a legacy play. I think it's more just like to have that to have that resolution within his career. I think that's that's interesting. And and like with Rondo, I wonder how this is going to affect it, especially because he played so well in the he played so well in the postseason. But yep. like, so there's I I don't. I'm not a big Hall of Fame person, especially because the Basketball Hall of Fame is so spectacularly messed up. But like Rondo. He has four all-defensive team appearances, but he only has one all-NBA appearance. And for me, it's very hard for a player like that to any four all-star games. Like To me, a player like that isn't, isn't necessarily Hall of Famer, but this is absolutely a feather in the cap. And for the idea that Rondo was a, more of a 16-game player than an 82-game player, I think you got a, a really nice piece of evidence here. And 
after all of the stuff that he's been through, going back to basically when he was from the injuries and when he the, the disaster in Dallas back yep. in 2015, to make it, you know, Sacramento, Chicago, the Pels, and then now with the Lakers, like this is it. It, it, it takes on a different tenor. Like it, I'll. I'll I'll connect this to the the warrior like very briefly to the Warriors book I wrote, which was um, after the basically during the twenty sixteen seventeen season, and I got into this idea that what hap- you, that you think about what preceded the, like the end of a player's career or something else, you know, it becomes different precedent when the ending changes, and so like with the Warriors, it was like all the pain that they had in the like in the. Nelson years and the, the horrible years before that and everything else, like like the, the rough times that the franchise had, it feels differently after they've won a bunch. And for Rondo, I think it's probably the same. Like now it's like, oh, he spent those years in the wilderness and look, he found his way back. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, no, it's amazing. And I think that there is like a real recency bias toward the way that people close their career. What is the last image that you saw from a player? Uh, for Rajon Rondo up until these last, couple of years here with the Lakers the last image was he was a basketball nomad he had played for since like the start of the calendar 2015 year he had played for six different teams like and like he was and and he had a role within that Pelicans team and they basically dumped him for Julius Randle like you think about think about how how those sorts of things work out and then last year I mean Rondo only played half the season he he came off the bench about half the time that he even played and to have to to have this on top of it, yeah, it's, it, it is really great for him. And we can shift to Davis, and I think that Anthony Davis's story is far from far from over. I mean, he's still right. in his still in his late twenties, and he, you know, I, I I think that he gets he gets a, a feather in his cap that we don't often see, which is like a huge part of a championship team. But he didn't have to be the best player, and. Sure, there will be questions, you know, in terms of legacy stuff if he ever gets into the rarefied air of like best big man of all time. But a lot of the questions about whether he could be, you know, whether whether he was better as being a, a big fish in a small pond, like there was that idea in New Orleans, and I vehemently disagreed with that personally. Right. I thought that his talent, you know, especially because he can do so many things well and does so few poorly, I thought that would work well in a different circumstance, and he's absolutely thrived playing next to LeBron James on the Lakers. Yeah, I think that Anthony Davis is someone that does need a number one offensive star next to him. Be it LeBron James, be it someone like a Luka Doncic would be really interesting. Uh, Even putting him in Miami with like a situation like Jimmy Butler and all of the guys that they have down there who can really just knock down shots and uh, in part the Spolstra offense just kind of creates looks in and of itself because they know how to get the matchups that they want. Uh, Even putting Anthony Davis in a situation like Brooklyn this year where they had uh, Kyrie Irving, I think that that would have really helped him. Having said that, like, I think that it's okay to not be the best player on a title team. Like, there are so few guys that are the best player on title teams. Like, I went through this on a recent podcast, but, like, basically, assuming that we think that Kawhi Leonard is going to be a top 30 player of all time, which I think is probably a pretty reasonable uh, conservative statement, right? Yeah, I guess so. 
I mean, just kind of given where we're at with his career right now, and mm-hmm. given that it's likely that he's going to continue to contend with the Clippers for a while now, uh, unless that team just like totally falls apart next year, which I don't really see happening, to be honest. Uh, and we'll talk about that momentarily. But every single best player on a title team, basically going back to the 80s and even uh, the, maybe even the 70s, has been like a top 30 player of all time, other than that Detroit Pistons team in the early 2000s. I believe 2004 is when they won that title. So the fact that Anthony Davis can be the best number two in the NBA, that's an incredible achievement, in my opinion. That, that doesn't denigrate him. He can still become a top 30 player of all time, even without being the best player on a title team. Like Scottie Pippen is a top 30 player of all time or whatever, despite being the number two, like the best number two of all time. Like I think Anthony Davis can be one of the best number twos of all time. And it also, for the for the time being, it also allows Davis, you know, if he still deals with some injury stuff that, that they still have in, they still have a pe- person that can keep them in the mix. So it's not like a Davis missing 10 games all of a sudden knocks the Lakers out. But the dynamic to watch here, and this will be huge for Davis's legacy, is even though LeBron is a cyborg sent from the future to run basketball, at some point, it's going to wear down a little bit. And so when, assuming assuming both players stick, in, stick on the Lakers, which is far from a guarantee, but if that happens, the transition between LeBron being the best player on the Lakers and then Davis being the best player on the Lakers will be absolutely fascinating. LeBron James, I think it's just very clear that there's a top two. I don't really want to litigate the whole thing of is there, uh, is he the best player of all time? Because it's just like a pedantic conversation to me. I, I think it is a conversation and maybe it's worth having at some point, but like it, it's a full podcast conversation. It's not an easy, like simple conversation. Uh, it, it just kind of is, it, 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 it's taken on a life of its own almost the is he the goat conversation and like it's just not an interesting conversation to me almost right now i agree like uh he's the top two player of all time it's fine um contavious caldwell pope we're gonna look back and watch these uh this series and be like oh wow he was really good for a while that's great uh and he probably will have to get some real money this summer because he is a free agent and uh, do, do you want to transition into the Lakers offseason? Because that seems like a decent a decent way to do it. Yeah, let, let's do that. Because the Contavious Caldwell-Pope conversation is kind of interesting because a lot of teams could use him right now. Basically, every team that has reasonable space, like for instance, Atlanta, could really use someone like Contavious Caldwell-Pope. They could. Uh, I don't know, though, that anybody's going to be bending over backwards for it. I mean, KCP is hurt a lot by the specific dynamics of 2020 in that, yeah, I think he would help a lot of those teams, but Charlotte, Detroit in particular, I don't think that they're at the yeah. right place. And and Caldwell Pope next year will be his age 27 season. Probably he's, he's already turned 27 now. Maybe he'll be age 20. We're, these lines are going to be weird because of the season potentially changing timing. So I, I think that KCP is more valuable 
to the Lakers than he than he is to a lot of other teams just because they need they 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 can't really replace him very well. I mean, they have Avery Bradley, they have Rondo, but they, you know, like uh, again, if he even if KCP leaves, they'll basically just have the middle-level exception and the middle-level exception is more valuable for the Lakers than almost everybody, but it's still hard to get somebody. And so then that leads into the really interesting thing, which is that through an incredibly circuitous route, Catavius Caldwell Pope well, more accurately, the Lakers have full bird rights on Contavious Caldwell-Pope because he has completed three seasons yep. in Los Angeles. And what that means as a practical consideration is that they can, emphasis on the word can, not will, pay him any amount up to his maximum without having to use a different exception. Now, right. that, doesn't mean, that doesn't mean they're offering the max. I mean, it would be exceedingly expensive for the Lakers, but when you consider that KCP is a clutch sports client and when you consider that he played an integral role in the champions, and while I'm not sure that I would have the Lakers as my most likely champions next season, knowing what we know right now, they're definitely in the mix. Like they're, They were a Tier 1 team this year. They will be a Tier 1 team next year, barring injury. And so I, I, my expectation is that he comes back it's just how hard can each side squeeze, and I don't know the answer. I really think that a lot of this comes down to will Atlanta be interested? Because Contavious Caldwell Pope uh, is from, uh, I believe he went to high school in like Greenville, yep. which is relatively close to Atlanta. Well, and he went to and he went to UGA. Yeah, I, I want to say that it's like something like. 40 50 miles from atlanta he's he's not like from atlanta he's like from outside of atlanta um so does is there a pool home for him is there uh, a situation where atlanta sees him as someone who really fits and by the way he does really fit what they need like they need someone in the backcourt who can be a high level defender on ones and twos given kevin herter and trey young and uh Cam Reddish was really good defensively this year, but I think he's going to be a little bit better dealing with threes and fours as he continues to age and continues to get a little bit stronger. I would venture that the way that this ends is that Caldwell Pope signs like a three-year deal for a little bit more than the mid-level. Like something like three years, 45 million, something like that, with the Lakers. The other kind of possibility I think it might go a little higher than that just because the luxury tax and all that doesn't matter as much to the Lakers and considering it's clutch sports you just kind of you you don't want to be too cute with it I think that that is the circumstance that Rob Polinka is in and remember that the last time Rob Polinka had was was being leveraged and didn't want to be too cute he gave up almost everything the Lakers had for Anthony Davis now they got a championship out of it and everything else but I wouldn't be surprised if they go a little bit over if Jeannie, because remember, it's also is the owner's voice in the ear, and I don't think Jeannie Buss is going to be pinching pennies too hard, especially after the Lakers just won a championship. Yeah, and you would think that this is going to lead to a massive amount of merchandising, massive amount of money influx into the Lakers, as it does every time that they win. So keeping essentially their third best player is really, really valuable for them, I think. Sure. Uh, Alex Caruso is under contract. Rajon Rondo has a player option. Like, I kind of, I don't know what I think he's going to decline and get a raise with the Lakers. Is my theory because they'll have early bird on him. That's enough to pay whatever will be reasonable. That's up to like nine to ten million. I don't think he's getting that. I think he's getting like five six. 
Yeah, I think that that's a reasonable outcome. Avery Bradley is a player option. I would imagine that he just opts into that. Uh, JaVale McGee is a player option. I would imagine he opts into that at 4.2. Uh, Quinn Cook, I would think, is probably going to be gone. He's a non-guaranteed deal at 3 million and that's just kind of I think to... I think they'll I think they'll try to try to trade him to get out of that 1 mil if they can. Um Yeah. Cuz they have we'll a 1 see. million guarantee on him for next year. Right. Um Kyle Kuzma is under contract. I would say that I kind of think Kyle Kuzma is a very real trade possibility this summer if they decide to move in that direction. Uh, Anthony Davis is under, or Anthony, uh, I'm sorry, Danny Green is under contract. Anthony Davis, we all just kind of assume that he's going to sign the max with the Lakers, but. Well, he is going to sign max. I actually have a piece at The Athletic I wrote in, I think that was during the hiatus. It might have even been pre-hiatus talking about davis's contract options and so so at the time yeah it was pre-covid because i talked about because i I was talking about it with what we thought the cap was going to be so i basically he the way that i would describe it is it's it i'll use the plus one format which is how nate duncan and i do it which is so a one plus one is one year and then a player option for the second so my theory going into pre-covid was that Davis was going to sign a two plus one, which is the same contract that Kawhi Leonard signed. So two years and then a third year player option, because that would have lined up with his 10 years of experience. And then yep. theoretically could get the 35% max. However, now my inclination because of the lower than expected cap is that he will sign a one plus one, then yep. get the bump, get another bump in 21, sign another one plus one. So more like Kevin Durant, sign another one plus one. And then, I, I presume he will stay in L.A., but then the other thing that that does for Davis, and I don't think he's focusing on this too hard, especially after winning the championship, but the other benefit of signing a one plus one right now is that it lines up his next free agency with LeBron James. And so LeBron yep. can sign any contract he wants with whomever he wants for the rest of his life. Uh, so I think it's nice to know, like basically Davis can know now, Okay, what's going on with LeBron? Does he what what kind of commitment is he going to make? What does he want to do? And LeBron has earned the right. Everybody has the right, but like LeBron, LeBron can name his price years and all that kind of stuff, and Davis can too. But I, I'm in, he has more variance because like, does he want to try to time things up so that he, he can be a free agent when this is my theory when Bronny is potentially going to be draft eligible? Something like that. Like, sure, he could do that. And so for AD, I think you want to keep things flexible. And the reason why you wouldn't is to lock in the security. I think at this point, Davis knows that he can get that contract whenever he wants. Yeah, I think that the Kevin Durant situation last year probably would give him a little bit more confidence. And and Clay Thompson. And Clay Thompson. That he can get a max contract even if he was to be injured. He has also made, uh, I believe it's like $125 in his career already, not counting endorsements. Uh, next year, we'll get him up over, what, it'd be like 155 then. So I think that he's in a good enough spot and secure enough financially to where he can continue to sign these one plus one deals until he gets to that 10-year max where he is slated to make at least 35% of the salary cap. I agree with you. I think one plus one is probably the most likely option for Anthony Davis. Uh, And it continues to put the pressure on the Lakers organization to have to spend money and win. And like you said, they do have a mid-level exception. I would imagine that, let me look at their number here. I would think they're going to have a full mid-level, right? We'll have to see. I, I think with the raises that Davis and KCP are going to get, I think they'll be at the taxpayer middle level. But we, we, the, we the, the answer is we don't know for sure yet. Yeah, I, I was going to say, it's like kind of on the borderline. The 
the thing that kind of helps them is that the Deng money doesn't count toward, uh, like it counts toward the salary cap, but it doesn't count toward the tax, right? No, it does. Oh, does it? Why did yep. I think that? Why am I wrong? It's um, it's stretched, so it counts. Yeah. It counts for the it counts for that amount. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, they're going to be they are probably going to be a taxpayer mid level exception team. It's interesting to try and find the guy. Do you have a guy in mind that makes some sense for them? Not really. Um, I, I think the challenge with trying to predict somebody to the Lakers is that it's probably going to be somebody taking a pay cut. Yeah. And predicting who's going to take a pay cut is a little bit difficult. I wouldn't be surprised if it's a, you know, like a forward, just because you think of having KCP and Danny Green, if they don't trade him, as being more guard options and Rondo and all that. So I could see somebody like Glenn Robinson the third or... Derek Jones Jr. Potentially, I think you want somebody with a little bit more shooting there. Um, but the forward options aren't particularly inspiring in this class. This is this is not the greatest group. In some ways, the funniest would be Wes Matthews because that would be also taking him away from the Bucks, and that could be that could be a possibility. Maybe Wes Matthews wants to would. I mean, he doesn't have the connection to that area like he does to Wisconsin as a Marquette player. But yeah, well, well I, I don't have any clear cut fits though. Yeah, neither do I. It's kind of hard to find. That one guy, maybe like a, I think Justin Holiday would make some sense for them. Sure, uh, a guy that can knock down shots, versatile defensively. Um, Garrett come, Temple. Yeah, if Garrett he, Temple. I, I think I think they're I think the Nets are going to decline his option. Interesting, because that team is just so comically expensive. Like I, you know, like that five million. I don't have the specific numbers on it, but let's say roughly that five million will cost them ten million, maybe even twelve or thirteen. I, I just think that as much money as as like I don't think that he moves the needle enough for them to to make that sort of a that sort of thing if they, if they're going to keep Joe Harris, which I think they will. Yeah, to me, I've been kind of trying to figure out if they're going to move Torian Prince with their draft pick. They might. That's kind of what I've been assuming is going to be their way out. But Garrett Temple declining that option. The, the reason I'm hesitant that they decline Garrett Temple is just because uh, I think that everyone on that team loves Garrett Temple. True, and I think that that keeping things happy for Steve Nash's first year is going to be very important with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving there. Um, the last thing that we should mention here with the Lakers before uh, on their off season, at least, and, and we should talk about them just getting creative, right? They do have their first round pick and they do have Kyle Kuzma who they're going to have to make a decision on paying uh Maybe this summer, probably more likely next summer, because I don't think that they're going to be trying to extend Kyle Kuzma necessarily after what we saw in the playoffs. I kind of am intrigued by the idea of moving him this summer, but I always think that teams should act early on moving guys. Where are you on Kyle Kuzma and kind of the optionality that the Lakers have now uh, to move guys like him? I never particularly liked his fit with LeBron and AD just because Kuzma doesn't play great defense and he kind of he's too comfortable you know he kind of wants the ball a little bit more than fits perfectly with that group and we saw that you know largely he was marginalized with this I one of the challenges of of a Kuzma centric trade is just getting the matching salary the Lakers don't have any exceptions so one theory of that would be the one kind of movable guy they have that actually makes money is Danny Green so theoretically you could think Kuzma plus Green to get somebody who makes more in the like $20 million range. That could be a possibility. I don't have any clear fits in mind. Um, but yeah, I would 
I would rather move it. And, and remember that 2021 is going to be an offseason when a lot of teams have money. And yep. you don't need that much of a constituency in order to get paid. So it'll, it'll only take a couple of teams that are interested in Kuzma for his for his value to go higher. And if a team thinks they can poach him from the Lakers and everything else like that, that's there's some real value there. So I could see I could see teams being interested. So yeah, I would I get like you. I would move early rather than late, especially because he is not an essential piece. Like title teams, the rules are different. Like con- contending teams, but I think they could move Kuzma, get a player, even if they're quote unquote worse, who is better for for this configuration, and theoretically is is you can do something with long term. So just a couple of names that come to mind in his salary cap range, not necessarily uh, in the attached Danny Green to him and try and go bigger fish hunting. We don't think there's any way that the Pistons would do Luke Kennard for Kuzma in their first, right? I think they I th- I think the Pistons would consider that. I don't th- I don't think Kennard is so like so essential necessarily to what the Pistons are doing. And remember Troy Weaver, not the general manager that drafted Luke Kennard. Right. Yeah. And they tried to uh they tried to trade Kennard under the previous regime as well. Uh if you remember there was that botched Phoenix Suns deal that never really came to fruition. Maybe it wasn't botched, but maybe it was just reported early uh before the whole deal was done. Kennard obviously has some injury concerns as well to where I don't know that I would feel great about paying him, but I think Kennard's a better fit with that team in I Los agree. Angeles than he is in Detroit. Uh, Frank Nilakina is interesting to me as a flyer for this team that one thing we didn't really talk about is that the Lakers have just focused all of their energy on defensive minded players. And the thing that would worry me about Nilakina is that his confidence seems to go. So I wonder about how he would perform in the playoffs, but someone like him who is an elite level multi-positional defender, I think would just fit within the ethos of the Lakers. If you could just do Kuzma for Nilakina uh, and maybe they add in like their second round pick at like 37 or something. Uh, if they really wanted Kyle Kuzma, Finally, I was just kind of thinking like Terrence Ferguson, just like a straight swap, because again, multi-positional defender can knock down shots, just kind of guys like that. I think guys that are better fits, multi-positional defenders or offensive creators in the backcourt for Kyle Kuzma. Those are the kind of guys that interest me for the Lakers. I don't know that Presti is thinking that way, but it's a worthwhile idea to consider. Yeah, to me, it would just be like Sam Presti is out here trying to... Maybe he doesn't see Terrence Ferguson as like a long-term fit here and thinks they're going to be rebuilding. So Terrence Ferguson maybe is not necessarily the most valuable player on a rebuilding team, but can he be valuable to someone like the, like the Lakers and maybe we take a shot on Kuzma or something like that was my idea. Uh, also, another team that's kind of interesting would be the Cavs because the Cavs do yeah, have I had thought of a- about Darius Garland. Yeah, I think it would take at least the Lakers first round pick as well like to get Garland. Um, I wouldn't do that. I would still, if I was the Cavs and I was in that position, uh, Garland's obviously a clutch client as well, which. Oh, I'd forgotten about that. Um, I was thinking about something involving Danny green where they also took on Exum. And also that'd be hilarious because then Danny green would be going back to Cleveland, which most people forget is where his NBA career started. Right. Yeah. I kind of like the Cavs as an, interesting Kuzma target. I would not trade Garland for Kuzma in there first because I think the upside of Garland is still just worth uh, 
mining at this stage. Well, and, and Garland is on team control for longer, and Kuzma, if he gets properly... Also, Kuzma Love would be disaster defensively. Well, yeah. I mean, that whole team's a disaster defensively. Like, I, I think oh. that they're just, like, accumulating toys to play with right now and see what sticks, right? And maybe they could decide that Kyle Kuzma is something that could stick, but I'm not... Uh, that that's a that's a situation that stands out as if the Lakers are looking for something specific, I could see the Cavs going, let's take a shot on Kyle Kuzma. The last thing I want to talk about with the Lakers, and then we'll move on uh, to the rest of the four teams that we want to talk about. This is a team built on defense, and we kind of brushed over the hiring of Frank Vogel in building mm-hmm. that defensive identity. And I think that that is almost the second biggest decision that was made last summer. The biggest decision obviously being signing Anthony or trading for Anthony Davis, signing move all of those pieces. The second biggest choice here was Frank Vogel and building the defensive identity that this team built. They were very clearly one of the two or three best defensive teams throughout the season. And they continued that play in the playoffs in large part because of Anthony Davis, but in large part because they had built a culture of defensive acumen and of aggressive defensive play that where they could switch different coverages at different times and make things a lot more difficult for teams. It it was really impressive. I thought I agree. So uh, I just don't want to give Frank Vogel the short end of the stick here because he did a great job. Do you want to continue on the great culture and go to the Clippers? Oh God, let's take a commercial break before we do that. Good God. Clippers. That'll be fun. Uh, we'll, We'll be back here momentarily. We have, Uh, a few advertisements to hit you with. All right, let's go to the Clippers. Oh, God. Uh, Their offseason is actually pretty straightforward. Um, So when when Lawrence Frank traded... The Clippers 2021st for Marcus Morris. The expectation was that they were doing it to potentially re-sign him. Morris, why I said it's easy is because they only have, since he signed a one-year deal originally with the Knicks, they only have non-bird rights on him. And what that means is that the Clippers can only sign Marcus Morris to a deal worth $18 million or less. They could go one to four years. They could have 5% raises at the maximum. That's the most raises they could do. They can't do 8%. So, Presumably, that's going to be enough for him. I don't really know who else is going to make that kind of an offer. The Clippers are a contending team. He starts, he closes. You know, you get you get all of those things with them. So I expect that he'll be back. The more interesting questions to me are Montrez Harrell and Jermichael Green. Harrell, unrestricted free agent, recently crowned sixth man of the year, had a terrible bubble, but that was argue. I would argue that that was due to circumstances that are not expected to repeat due to the personal the personal tragedy and him being a little bit out of shape. But all of that said, Harrell, I think that his future with the Clippers is more dependent on what other teams think of him rather than what the Clippers think of him. I think his future with the Clippers is very murky, if only just because... What? What does he bring for this Clippers team? Like, realistically, like, you probably can't play him with the starters at the end of the day. You can't close with Montrezl Harrell. There are teams out there where you could maybe make a case for closing with Montrezl Harrell. I don't think the Clippers are one of them. 
So well, see, the, the problem is he has a lot of equity with the franchise, but does he have equity with this front off front office and ownership group? Probably a little bit less so. I mean, that was that was another part dynamic of the Doc Rivers situation. Is I mean, Doc and Lawrence Frank seemed like they had a very positive relationship, and Doc and Balmer did too. But a lot of that was holdover from the Sterling era. With Harrell, the team that I think is the elephant in the room here is the Charlotte Hornets because the Hornets. Harrell is a North Carolina native. Mitch Kupchak and Michael Jordan might be interested in getting better sooner, even if it is kind of like fool's gold cotton candy, where they're getting better but not in a way that actually makes them a good team. Yeah. And so if they give, if they think of Harrell as a starting center and just say, oh, the Clippers don't have that opportunity, and they offer him starter money, which they could, they could pretty much do based on the cap space they have, then I, the Clippers, I don't think they can come close to that. I don't think it would be wise for them to do so, even though Steve Ballmer is made of money and can do whatever he wants. Yeah, no, I don't think the Clippers should go over the mid-level for Harrell. And I think someone's going to go over the mid-level for Harrell at the end of the day. And the other part of this that's interesting for Harrell is that this is a center-saturated market, even more so than like other years, right? Uh, if you want a young guy like Montrezl Harrell, as a replacement option in Christian Wood, right? If you want an more of a guy in his prime who can provide value on both ends of the floor, you have Derek Favors, potentially. If you want an older veteran type of guy, you can go get Serge Ibaka or Marc Gasol. Like, there are going to be a lot of options on this marketplace that do have potential to mute Montrezl Harrell's value to the point where there's a case that you could make a sen- you could make a case for him to sign like a one-year deal somewhere and try to hit the market again next year. If he thinks could. that the money isn't going to be there. And after this playoffs, I do think there is a real chance the money is not necessarily going to be what he thought it was going to be coming into the playoffs. Because like I would imagine he went into the playoffs thinking he's going to make 15 to $18 million a year next year. And I just don't see that dollar figure out there for him. But here's the thing. I think that you could be right. And... But Harrell, he was making the minimum basically for three years, and then he got that two-year, $12 million contract. I think he he understands how fleeting this can all be, and he did win six men of the year, and I think, I think that he is going to be very risk-averse. And so it's possible that he could leave some money on the table, but I think if somebody makes a three- to four-year commitment with a substantial thing, even if it isn't in those crazy numbers like you were talking about before, I don't think he wants to roll the dice. Well, and here's, here's the other really interesting thing. If he rolls the dice, he shouldn't do it in L.A. because Oh, no, he should do it he elsewhere. Did, yeah, He should do I it agree. elsewhere. And and so I think... I, I, he should I do it in Charlotte. A, if he's going to roll the dice, he should do it in Charlotte. Yeah, because they could offer him, they could offer him the center spot. He's going to get plenty of, plenty of opportunities there. And then the other the, reason why the Clippers... Well, Yeah, I was going to say, like, the other thing that's interesting about this is I kind of think the Clippers are going to have to make a choice between him and Jermichael Green at the end of the day. Because if Montrezl Harrell is there, I would imagine that Jermichael Green is going to say, I don't know what my role is going to be. I can go elsewhere and play a better role somewhere. Not even necessarily due to the money. Like, I would imagine Jermichael Green is going to decline this player option, if only because I think he can get more dollars it longer term if he wants it he's only at five million like he's a guy that i think is actually really valuable for someone like again denver who was interested in him last summer yeah i i think that the challenge for for jermichael green is that there are a lot of us who really like him but i don't know that a lot of the people who do have levers of power like i mean generally speaking when a player 
gets less money than I expect. I kind of ex- expect that to continue. Like there are various examples yeah. throughout throughout time, yep. and Jermichael Green's a pretty it seems like a pretty clear example that I was surprised at the contract he signed with the Clippers last offseason. Yep, and he I, I I like, but remember, and so if your logic is right and that he you know declines the player option, I just don't know necessarily that teams are going to be falling all over themselves to give him the mid level. I think there might be enough suitors to make it justifiable to turn it down. The other reason why I think it would be smart for him to do so is that just opens flexibility for him potentially returning to the Clippers on a differently structured contract, which I think could be a good thing for for Green. I, I mean, I like him as a small ball center, and I think that a front court rotation you probably maybe then use the if if. Harold leaves, maybe use the the mid level on somebody else in the front court rotation. Whether that's a four or a five would just depend on who wants to take your money. But yeah, I think that they run the risk of kind of having too many mouths to feed and not having every box checked. And I think that could be a very a potential risk for the Clippers moving forward. In the case of Green. The reason that I bring him up is like there's real case for Denver to be interested. There's a real case for Portland to be interested. Uh, I think you can make a case for someone like Phoenix to be interested, given that it seems like Phoenix wants to make the playoffs next year and has a real hole potentially at the four next to DeAndre Ayton. And you want to have like some defensive versatility. I think Houston, he's like the perfect small ball five for them if they want to use the taxpayer mid-level. And really, the taxpayer mid-level is more like if he could get a fully guaranteed taxpayer mid-level exception, that's going to get him four years, 30, four years, 28, something like that. You might have the number off the top of your head. I, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but that seems about right. Yeah. So like at the end of the day, like what I come back to here is even a taxpayer mid-level for Jamichael Green is a win for him, given the deal that he's currently on and given his age. Right. So there are enough teams out there that can offer him at least that to where I think he should definitely decline because I think that that money is at least going to be on the table for him. Uh, That's not a crazy amount more than the Clippers. And maybe you can make the Clippers, I think, should just pay him, to be honest. If I was the Clippers, I would say here, Jamichael, I know that we have, uh, I believe, full bird rights on him. Right. They acquired him by a trade, so yes, I believe they do. Yeah, I believe they have full bird rights, so they can go up to whatever they want for him, um, even if he was to decline this deal, and it's not like they're playing with cap space. So, like, I'd kind of just let him see where the market is, and assuming that you and I are right, that he is not going to have the robust market that we think he's going to have, come back to the Clippers and say, look, this is what I've got from someone else, and if I was the Clippers, I'd just say... Yeah, we'll give you a one million dollar raise on that per year, and just go from there because it's not going to be more than six or seven million a year. I don't. I, I agree with you. I don't think it will be. So, um, and I would rather have Jamichael Green than Montrezl Harrell for what it's worth for this team at least. Uh, there are yeah, other teams where you can make the case for like Harrell. Zub, they already have Zubots. They like Harrell. Harrell doesn't. He's not. If you can't be a part of the closing five on a championship team, then you probably should get paid a lot of money by a championship team. Right. Um, the question that I have is what they do with the backcourt because yeah, you can say that they're pretty locked in, right? Like they have Patrick Beverly signed for two more years. They have Lou Williams signed for next year. I kind of think that one of those two is going to go and I don't know what it's going to be. 
Uh, Lou makes the most sense to move, but I would venture that that this team wants to make real substantial changes to its roster. And one of the ways to do that is by letting Harold go. Another way to do that is by getting a different backcourt member in place. Lou Williams, also part of the argument in favor of trading him, is that he's on a very team-friendly contract, which makes him easier to move. Yep. And and also, he kind of rep- there was the reporting from Jovan Buha and various other places about the kind of the old guard versus the new guard dynamic with the Clippers, and Lou Williams is a pretty clear example of the old guard there in a way that I think Patrick Beverly is not. Remember, Patrick Beverly came. You know, I I just don't think of I I don't. I mean, he's very vocal, but I don't necessarily think that he is as you know aligned with somebody like Harold maybe as Lou Williams might be. I don't know all of those dynamics, but that's my instinct. And also because Patrick Beverly defends and he can function within a Kawhi Leonard, Paul George ecosystem in a way that Lou Williams cannot. Like he, it's nice to have somebody who can create a little bit, but I don't think Lou Williams should be closing games for the Clippers because they have other guys to initiate offense and Lou Williams is an open sore defensively most of the time. Yeah. So they could get somebody who is more limited, but also a better fit. So this kind of is like the Kyle Kuzma conversation we just had. And also, Williams is one year away from unrestricted free agency. So he's team-friendly now. There's no guarantee he's going to be that moving forward. Whereas Beverly, he's under contract for two more years. He's under contract longer than Paul George and Kyle Leonard if they decline their player options. Yeah, I'm trying to find the guy or the team that makes sense for Lou Williams. Like, I think you can maybe make a case for Indiana, just a team that needs a bit more of an offensive infusion uh, from its backcourt. Like, I think that that would make some sense for them to target him just on a one-year deal. Uh, I don't know that Brooklyn necessarily makes a ton of sense. Uh, They don't need anybody. They don't need anybody else who wants the ball in their hands. They have plenty. Yeah, they have everyone there. It's hard to find the team for Lou, I think. Like, Indiana might be the one for me that sticks out. Maybe you can make a case for Milwaukee as well. But if you're the Clippers, would you really want to... I mean, you could make a case for Phoenix, incidentally. Where, not with yeah. not playing with Devin Booker, but just to have another guy who's dynamic, that could end up being useful for them. And they have plenty of defenders. Which is yeah. a truly incredible statement about where the Phoenix Suns are. <laughs> Before we get to Phoenix, I, I guess that we should just talk about where the Clippers are in general and what they should be building around because they're building around Paul George and Kawhi Leonard at least for one more year I think that they're probably building around Patrick Beverly although if the right deal came around I think he could be moved uh Ivica Zubats I think will be there just because that deal is really Uh good oh can I can I interject with a like my juicy idea with this is yeah my big question with the Clippers is can they maintain flexibility? Flexibility is not the same thing as like having clean books. So that theoretically, if things change in 2021, they can be able to change with that. And what I mean is if either Paul George or Kawhi Leonard wants to leave, or let's say if both of those guys want to stay, but somebody better than one of them, like, I don't know, Giannis Antetokounmpo, wants to come. And so basically the more money, like Harrell is a great example of this, the more money the Clippers throw at Harrell, not only does that decrease their 2021 flexibility, but it also makes Harrell harder to trade in case the best case scenario happens. Yeah, and if you're the Clippers here, maybe that's a case for moving a Zubats. 
maybe well, you, but I think you can always do that later. Like that, like yeah. the, if there's a will, there's a way. Like I, it's always hard with championship level teams. I think that you want to make those kinds of moves a little bit when when you when you know that you need to. I think it's probably like the example there is probably the Warriors with KD. So they didn't, you know, they didn't do anything with Harrison Barnes or Festa Zilli until they knew that Kevin Durant was coming. Yeah, that's a and good then point. Those things happen. Yeah. Uh, I am interested in the idea of them trying to clear potential max cap space for 2021 in case they have to. That's an interesting concept to me. Especially yeah, in regard it, it to is. just like the way that the Paul George situation went down this year. Well, and then the other big question with the Clippers is, I mean, assuming Palmer wants to fork over the money, which I'm guessing he is, their mid-level, I think, is actually more enticing than the Lakers because they potentially have some roles to fill. Like, if if, the, if new coach X doesn't feel comfortable with Lou Williams being in the closing five, so it's Beverly, Beverly, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, and probably two question marks, one of which is a bigger guy, maybe Jermichael, maybe Zubats, and then the other one might be a smaller guy, might be a bigger well, and, guy. And we're assuming that they're going to keep Marcus Morris, right? Yeah, so I guess, so then, yeah, so I guess Morris is maybe that guy. So, but, but maybe you, maybe so somebody like, Wes Matthews or Justin Holiday or GR3 or something like that is just like, okay, I'll take a one-year deal to go to the Clippers to be to potentially be in the closing five, no guarantees. Like, I could see somebody good taking taking that opportunity. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Uh, I think that, that actually makes quite a bit of sense, to be honest. Just like kind of looking through the potential free agents this summer, like there aren't a crazy amount of them that are going to be uh, – potential difference makers like it's actually kind of difficult to find them in my opinion and and like for for let's say somebody like gr3 would he might there there are totally justifiable choices especially if the money isn't good anywhere okay you can take a bigger role on a worse team for a year or you can take a smaller role on a better team i mean there are arguments and there are arguments both ways and if you think about that it, like I mean, a big part of that is also how far do you think that team is going to advance? Because if you get four rounds to potentially make an impact, that's a lot more bites at the apple. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Uh, is there anything else we want to talk about with the Clippers here? Maintaining flexibility, I mean, potentially. Still trying to find role players that fit within the construct I mean, of this the, team. The big, the big question we're going to find out is new guard versus old guard. Like, is this, are they really going to change over? Like are Montrez Harrell, Lou Williams, both of whom have given a lot to this franchise, but have been compensated for it. Are they going to stick around? Um, do And how willing is Steve Ballmer to just foot a ridiculous bill? You know, I really like Rodney Magruder. I think that Rodney Magruder is properly paid at about 5.2 million. Yeah, but... They could also offload that money if they wanted to to save to save Balmer a little bit of money. I don't think they'll have to give up too much in terms of resource. So we're going to learn a lot about, especially with the them hiring a new head coach, about what like what the Clippers see as the identity of the Clippers. Kings or Suns next? Which one? Uh, let's do the Suns. Uh, unfortunately, the Suns off season to me got a lot less interesting when the cap ended up is going lower than projections because it was originally looking like they were going to have you know like really in the like 20 million dollar range if they let really let everyone go and especially when you look at how well the bubble suns did that that would have been pretty exciting instead it's going to be more in the like 15 like 15 million dollar 18 million dollar range and that's still 
interesting, but remember that the, the choice that Phoenix is making really is clear that all out and probably get one guy, maybe two, and then they would have the room exception, or stay over, retain Sharich. They would have bird rights on Aaron Baines. They could probably retain him if they wanted to. They could do whatever they want with Frank Kaminsky. I don't particularly care. Um, so I would, knowing what we know right now, I would probably intend to clear the space. But the amazing thing, as long as Sharch doesn't sign his qualifying offer, is that James Jones can actually do both. Because the way the qualifying offers work, and the best test case here is actually Kelly Olynyk. So what the Celtics did with Kelly Olynyk back in 2017 was they extended the qualifying offer, and Olynyk wanted to sign a long-term contract, so he wasn't going to sign it. And they, and, and they were kind of thinking there was a decent chance that they were going to just bring him back. But then Gordon Hayward says he wants to come. So then they just withdraw the qualifying offer. Kelly Olenek signs with Miami. I could see that right. same thing happening with Dario Saric. So Phoenix goes out there. They look for a player in that you know, 15 to 18 million range. And they could clear a little bit of extra if they wanted to. Uh, and then if they can get somebody, awesome. And if they can't, then they bring the guys back. So here, here's the other piece of this, though. It would be very easy for them to move that Kelly Oubre deal if they want max cap space. Yeah, but I don't know who they would uh, who they would get with Max. My favorite my favorite idea for the Phoenix Suns, and this is something that basically never happens, and that's why I'm a writer, not a general manager, is they could the guy that I think makes the most sense for where Phoenix is going is Fred Van Vliet. Right. And so what what never happens here is they signed Ricky Rubio last summer to be their point guard of the present and immediate future. They would basically be replacing Rubio when he's under contract for two more years. But the reason why I think it's worth doing is that Fred Van Vliet is way better and also younger and is a, a, a far superior fit with both Devin Booker and where the team is going because he can help give them a defensive identity but also spaces the floor. And I think that that's a really awesome backcourt. And when you think about where their front court is going, I think it could work really well. Yeah, I agree with you. If I was them, I would try and pull out all the stops to get Fred Van Vliet because it's the perfect fit for where their organization seems to be moving. They're moving into a contender window. Fred Van Vliet has proven that he can play both on and off ball, which is an essential part of having a backcourt partner for uh, Devin Booker. He's an elite level defensive point guard, uh, someone a skill set that is essential to playing with Devin Booker, even though Devin has gotten a little bit better defensively, uh, being able to provide him with as much insulation defensively and as much ability to play both on and off ball offensively from the point guard position as possible. That is what the sun should be doing. And the big thing for me is that to me, first you try to move Ricky Rubio's deal. Like I think that there are probably enough teams out there that need a point guard that could make a case for Rubio. But even if you can't move Rubio and you do have to move someone like Kelly Oubre, I think that the Ricky Rubio deal next summer would be very, very valuable to move. So you really only have one year of Rubio and then you could very easily move him on an expiring deal next summer. Well, and if any organization has experience with having too many point guards under contract, it's the Phoenix Suns. Yeah, and like it's not the worst case scenario, I don't think. Like, uh, no, if no, I was I them, I, I would be. Is... Yeah, I'd be going for it. Like, I would absolutely well, and, go and... out and try and sign Fred Van Vliet. So you can think about some of the other potential players that, and this is part of the reason why I've been 
thinking about Fred Van Vliet there is you, some of the other players that could potentially be available around their price range. Danilo Gallinari would make them much better offensively, but a little bit older. Gallo's 31. I don't think he's yep. a, a wonderful fit. He would he would make certain things better, but also the timeline doesn't work super well because remember, Booker, Booker and Aiton are both very young. And if it ends up being Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson and some of the other guys like... Gallo is going to be well past his prime by the guy by the time those guys are ready. Um, I think actually Serge Ibaka would be fascinating because you, then the idea that Aiton, you know, he doesn't want to be a five. Both basically, you could kind of trick both of them into the, thinking that they're both the four, <laughs> like that. That's sort of an idea. Oh um, my god! The, the, guy the, other, that, the, the guy in the Gallinari conversation that makes sense for me is Davis Bertans, a little bit younger. We assume sure. that Washington is just going to overpay to keep him, but if they don't, that's actually a name that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and Bertans, I think he fits well offensively and defensively. He's not great, but they have other, they have other options. And then the other thing to consider for Phoenix, especially if the Suns are optimistic about where things might be going from here, is. They really have one bite at the apple to add a an expensive, talented piece through free agency or an imbalanced trade, and that doesn't have to be in the summer, the fall of 2020. It could also be in 2021 yep. when Ubre comes off the books, when uh, they they basically did like, and, and it will be easier for them to move Rubio at that point. So I would say, if it were me, I would say it's kind of Van Vliet or bust. Where I agree. if you don't if you don't get him, then and, and especially especially like I wouldn't give Sharich a long term deal with this understanding because you're you're going to aim higher. Then you start looking at players who can help you next year, but not giving them a lot of guaranteed money. You kind of go to more of a Miami approach, which is will you know? I, I think this is how Miami's offseason is going to go. Is we'll pay we'll we'll give you a lot of money right now, but we're not going to give you money for a long time. And so they could that could be interesting for various free agents that are frustrated by this market and just want to move back in. And so instead, maybe you diversify with a couple of good players that would probably be getting the mid-level somewhere else, but instead you're giving them eight. That's pretty good. Yeah, and this is a both of the things we're talking about here are things that Phoenix has experience with. Like Phoenix was very interested in Fred Van Vliet last time that Fred was a free agent uh, two years ago. Additionally, they also gave Trevor Ariza a hilariously large one-year deal that ended up stealing him from Houston. I would imagine that they're going to probably try and do something similar. Like, if you can go out and sign Paul Millsap to one-year $17 million or something, like, that might be something he takes. I'm trying to think if there's – I don't think there are any other big notes. I, I'm interested in what happens with Javon Carter's free agency. Point guards who are better defensively than offensively are uh, – it's always a tough fit. But yeah. I do like Javon Carter. I, I think it might just be – it might just be he kind of has a tough go of it and we see where things go after after next season. Um, I'm guessing that that the, James Jones is not going to be as convinced to keep Elliot Cobo around. So we might see some more roster turnover. And also remember – I think that could be a really good thing for the Suns. Just yeah. the one of the big challenges they had. This was more of a an eighteen nineteen issue than a nineteen twenty. Is just having more guys on the roster that actually have a chance of being positive contributors, where yeah. you don't have to tie up four roster spots in guys that might be good eventually but aren't good right now. 
Yeah, like they're going to have Ty Jerome on the roster next year, you would think. They're going to have Jalen LeCue on the roster, you would think, next year. Because you don't sign Jalen LeCue, who was an enormous project, and then just give up on it after one year unless you just... And give him two guaranteed years. Yeah, an abjectly like terrible rookie year, which all indications that I've heard is that they're not like that disappointed with him or anything. So two of those spots are going to be taken up. They're going to have a third rookie coming in, the 10th overall pick this year. Cam Johnson was really good last year. I think he's probably graduated the status. Uh, Mikael Bridges yes. certainly has graduated the status. He's a monster. Like, what what a defensive freak Mikael Bridges is. Uh, so they're not going to have as many of those guys just on the roster as it is. I agree with you. So I, I think it's going to be really, really helpful for them. Uh, I also am intrigued, uh, and we can close here on just what the remnants of the bubble performance kind of do for them. Yeah. Do they think that they're closer to competing now than they did five, six months ago? Or are they going to take still more of a longer approach under Devin Booker, knowing that they have DeAndre Ayton and Devin Booker for at least four more years under contract? That's a fair point. Let's go to the Kings next. The Kings are in a... I don't know where the Kings are going right now, to be honest. They have Monty McNair, the, they have the a new general is, manager. The answer is... The answer is nowhere. I mean, and temporarily. I mean, the, so the craziest part about this, I think people lost sight of it a little bit. Remember when they when they dumped Deadman on they you know they signed him to that terrible contract. Well, I mean, I didn't think it was terrible at the time, but then and then dumped him to the Hawks. They did take on Jabari Parker's six point five million dollar player option, so they didn't actually gain that much spending power for no. this summer. Or fall. I'm going to keep making that mistake forever. So with and, and you did have the change the changeover in, in in front office. And so the rough estimate that I would use is that Sacramento has about 27 million to spend. Oh no, a little bit more than that. Maybe about 30 to spend without going into tax. They could open up more by uh, by trading or just waving Nemanja Bjelica, but I think they should keep him. I think that $7.2 million is totally reasonable for him. So the first priority is presumably still, even with Vlade no longer there, Bogdan Bogdanovich. I like Bogdan a lot. I think that he can be a useful part of a good team. I think that having somebody who's a secondary ball handler makes sense next to De'Aaron Fox. But then really outside of that, you know, the Kings aren't going to have cap space. They're Bogdanovich has a huge cap hold because he was not a rookie scale guy. He signed as a um, he, he signed a non rookie scale contract by staying staying away for three years. Note to Dario Sarge, unfortunately. Um, and so I think what they're going to do is they'll retain Bogdanovich as long as the offers don't get crazy. They will bring back some of their other guys if they really want to. They'll use the mid level and draft their picks and call it a day. The Bogdanovich thing. That's where the Lakers get really interesting for me because, yeah, he's a restricted free agent. And I would assume that if the Lakers can only offer their mid-level and if they could offer a full mid-level, this is not necessarily the taxpayer mid-level because the Kings would certainly match the taxpayer mid-level. A full mid-level. They would match the full too. I think they probably would. But I wonder if there's a world where the Kings would be like, kind of a similar deal to the Malcolm Brogdon thing last year where the Kings would be like, okay, if you're going to do this, we want number 28 overall and we'll let him go for that. 
and we'll do a well, sign. Well, the problem, the problem there though is the hard cap. Is that if the Lakers right. acquire Bogdanovich or anybody else via sign and trade, then they're hard capped at the apron, which is six million over the tax line. And I don't think the Lakers want I don't to do think that. They, can, they could probably think, make it work, but like it'd be very tight. I think they'd probably have to move Danny Green, and they'd probably have to do it in a salary dump. Like it could be one of those things where he goes to third place, and then you know th- there would be ways to make it work. Like they could theoretically do that to create a trade exception. And I like Bogdanovich with the Lakers, but I, I think the easy, the easiest approach, the most straightforward one, is generally that if a team has a restricted free agent, they like the restricted free agent, they will keep the restricted free agent. Yeah, I think that you're probably right there. Uh, it's not going to stop me from dreaming about ways to <laughs> get him to Milwaukee, potentially, or ways to get him to... Uh, I'm trying to think, like, none of the teams that have cap space really make a ton of sense for him. I actually, I kind of like him in a lot of those, but we run into the same issue that we did with KCP, which is that Bogdanovich isn't really at the right stage in his career for them. That like Charlotte, for example, it's going to take them a long time to get to where they need to, to get to where they need to go. And so Bogdanovich, he's already 28. So let's say it takes Charlotte three more years to turn the talent around. He's 31. He's probably getting towards the end of this contract. Eh, not really that. Like, I not actually like. I like Bogdanovich a lot on the Hawks. Actually, like it'd be it just just as another, another like in case I, I think he's better than Kevin Herter now. I think there's a distinct well, chance that he's better than Kevin Herter will end up being. Well, he can also play like a pseudo backup point guard role too. Absolutely. Bogdanovich. So like, but th- I don't know that that's what Travis Schlenk is going to do. Like, especially, and then the reason why this doesn't usually happen with restricted free agents is as long as you think there's a credible chance that the other team is going to match, if you make that offer, you're basically hold that space is basically being held for a couple days, and by that point, almost everybody else is signed. Now this year, there are so few cap space teams that maybe those teams hold a little bit more power, and maybe you, a team like the Hawks just goes well. We don't really have that many other guys we're interested, so we might as well roll the dice a couple times. But that's generally like I, I lean on history a lot, and that's you know there are a few auto porters of the world and those sorts of situations, but generally that's not the way it goes. Yeah, and I mean oftentimes those situations backfire for the incumbent teams, such as the auto porter situation, such as the Gordon Hayward situation with Utah as well. Uh, ended up getting to free agency a year earlier than what I would imagine Utah envisioned. Uh, by nature of Charlotte getting involved. So, yeah, you're 100% right. I would think this is probably going to be a relatively quiet offseason for the Kings. They're just going to make a decision on Bogdan. Uh, I would imagine that that decision will be that they retain him for at least one more year uh, before potentially moving him. Like, I I also kind of think that it would make more sense for them to sign him now and then trade him later than sign and trade him this summer. Totally fair. Like if the Lakers want to get involved, the way that you do it is you sign him now and then you trade him to the Lakers at the deadline versus right now. Yeah. And teams lose flexibility at that point, but teams will have a lot of flexibility in 2021. So that could be another timeline. Right. So the other big question here is Buddy Heald. Obviously, uh, Buddy Heald is apparently not speaking with Luke Walton, won't answer his calls, according to Jason Jones at our website. Uh, <laughs> what do the Kings do with Buddy Heald? Pray that somebody likes him more than they should. I mean, Heald, so it, this is... I this quite is like he- Buddy Heald, so I'll be interested to hear this one from you. 
Healed, uh, the numbers that I have for him is that he's owed 88 million over the next four years. I think there are some incentives where it could go, it could go each direction a little bit, but I, I think that he's, you know, the shooting is, is definitely at least partially for real, but I don't love his defense and that's a lot of money. I mean, to me, he's the object lesson of why you don't extend non-premium players early at a premium price because it can, it, it generally doesn't work out too well. Like he's not Jalen Brown. And he never was Jalen Brown, even though he's older than Jalen Brown. And I, I think that – and so with, with Heald, it's just – okay, so to me, he is unambiguously a negative value contract. And not every GM necessarily agrees with me, but I think most do. So then as Sacramento, it's it's sort of in a weird way – I described this with um, Minnesota back in the day as the Andrew Wiggins problem, yeah. which is – or Kevin Love for Cleveland. Which is okay. You have a negative value on your on your on your books. How worth it is it to you to just get off of it? Because I, I, if it's negative value, then that means Sacramento is going to have to give up something to get off of Buddy Heald. And I mean, sure, you don't want somebody who doesn't want to be there. But if it's you know, I wouldn't give up anything of value right now to dump it because each year, especially because his contract is more front loaded, it's not entirely front loaded. Then you, because he has a weird rise at the end. Um, but so it, it looks better probably with passage time. It's hard for it to look worse. So I might just keep him around. I don't think it's quite as big of a disaster as you do. I think it's a negative value, but I don't think it's like strongly. Like I think he's worth four years, probably sixty-five million. Something like that, four years, sixty million. Uh, see, I'm, I'm not convinced. I, I'm not convinced that he's a starter in the NBA. So I am, and the reason that I say that is just it, it's going to be situational. Maybe is the way to put it. Like if you put him in Miami and let him run off of fucking dribble handoffs all day, like he's averaging twenty points a game, like no doubt. Like he's, if you put him in a situation where you can take advantage of his shooting, his quick release, uh, his ability to play on ball a little bit but you don't want him like driving in the lane because he can get stripped pretty easily. His elite level shooting ability is genuine. Like he's probably going to be one of the 15 to 20 most voluminous three point shooters in NBA history. By the time he retires, like he's just on that trajectory already. Um, He's made 873 threes in four years or whatever. And uh, is shooting 41% on those threes. So, you can like is Buddy Heald better or worse than Duncan Robinson? Like I, I think he's a better player than Duncan Robinson. It's just that he's not in as strong of a situation. I don't think his jump shot is as versatile. I also think that the height difference is potentially important. I think Duncan Robinson cares more on defense, though he has been on teams that force him to be accountable. Yeah. I don't know that I agree with the versatility of the jump shot because, yeah, it might be more versatile off the catch and it might be like a quicker release where he has that ability to just like catch it high and get into his shot immediately. He can, Buddy can do way more off of pull ups than what Duncan Robinson can. So, yeah, but I don't think you want the ball in Heald's hands enough to make the pull ups matter. But like the Heat put the ball in Duncan Robinson's hands a lot yeah. at the end, like his. Like, even though it's mostly in designed actions for him to get a shot and make one quick read and pass, I, I kind of think Buddy has been hindered a lot by this coaching staff. At the end of the day, it's what it comes down to. Uh, there hasn't really been a coach there that has a high enough level offensive creativity 
to utilize his elite level shooting ability in the way that he is capable of being utilized, I guess, uh, especially in today's modern NBA. Like it, the deal that keeps coming back to me is just the obvious one, like the 76ers getting buddy healed. And, you know, again, they just hired doc rivers. So we're not talking about like one of the elite level creative offensive minds in the NBA, but having the kind of spacing that he would or he would provide spacing for Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, but also they would provide defensive attention away from him in a way that he hasn't really gotten the opportunity to show yet. Like if the Kings are interested in Al Horford in any way, because they think that the key to their development is getting Marvin Bagley figured out defensively. And they think that having Al Horford around defensively to teach Buddy Heald some, or to teach Marvin Bagley some things would be helpful. I kind of think that there's a deal centered around those two that makes sense. I mean, I love that deal for Sacramento, but that's because I'm lower on healed. And also, Horford's contract is shorter, and you don't have to worry about the championship incentives in all likelihood. So basically, you're trading Horford for two years and then a partially guaranteed third, whereas healed has four more years. Right. Uh, if I was Philadelphia, I would be comfortable taking that deal. I, I just kind of would, because it, it really rebalances their roster in a critical way that allows you to do a little bit more than what you can currently do now to me if you're giving if you're spending the kind of money that buddy healed is going to make there you need somebody who can create in the half court like you know who can do things with yeah. the ball in their hands because because and that's not what buddy healed does well but do they have a route from trading al horford or tobias harris to getting that guy i guess is my thing i would have to really think about it yeah i I have, and I don't really know that there's that guy out there that any team will be looking to move for a negative value deal in Horford, right? So getting like the next best thing, which would be spacing from the wing position and like the two guard position, I kind of like it. Like I'm kind of I'm kind of in on that idea for the 76ers and for the Kings from a relative perspective, if they want to, uh, under a new general manager, look at finding a way to, I don't want to say rebalance their books but potentially get a little bit more flexibility going forward with their books like that's kind of a win-win deal and i would imagine that honestly i think that would you say that the 76ers or the kings have to put in asset value to make that deal work so i would if it were me i would say the kings but i would say that the overall collective would say the sixers because horford's deal is seen as worse even though yeah. I disagree with that. Also, like, think about what that Kings lineup would be. So that'd be Fox, Bogdanovich, presumably he'd still be around. Pro- you'd probably go Barnes, Barnes, Bagley, Horford. It's a much more balanced lineup. Yeah, it is. Uh, there's a chance that Al Horford just might be done. Um, no, entirely possible. But we'll see. Like, the, the other option for the 76ers would be if the Hornets want to compete now closer to now than later like you know you've kind of speculated here is there a chance that they would do like Al Horford for Terry Rozier if you think that Terry Rozier is a little bit more of a creative offensive mind than Buddy Heald is oh god Terry Rozier and Ben Simmons in the same starting lineup would drive would be would be exactly the type of thing that I would be betting against pretty regularly yeah I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, like, it's, it's funny like you're putting you're sending two guys to the Sixers that I just like less than almost every analyst yeah but like that that's kind of the the situation the Sixers are in, and I guess sure. I'll talk about this more on the Sixers 
yeah, and that's podcast. part of like when when your situation when your books are screwed up as theirs, you're choosing between unpalatable options. Right. Um, in the Kings, like I'm just trying to think if there are any other buddy healed fits that could work. I'm trying to think of like if you would put him. I don't think that Dallas would have any interest in doing this, just because I think they want to keep their books cleaner going forward because they have a route to max cap space next year, but. They have a route to max cap space, and and that like includes Dwight Powell and DeLon Wright. Like, is there a chance that the Kings would be like, yes, we'll take Dwight Powell and DeLon Wright? I don't think so, given Powell's injury. I'd also thought about, though they don't have the right talent, and I'm sure I'm going to get people angry at me in a certain fan base, he'll replacing J.J. Redick is kind of the... Yeah that guy in New Orleans, in New Orleans yep. could potentially be useful. But the problem is he ma- he makes so much money already and there's so much uncertainty there that I think committing to him before you know everything else would be foolhardy. I actually agree with you on that. And I think that because they have the 12th pick, they have a lot of guys in that range that uh, could be potential spacing options like Aaron Naismith, Sadiq Bey. Uh, they, have, they have a route to get a guy that can be similar to that. Uh, and by the way, the Kings do too. Uh, they have sure. a pick right before the... Uh, New Orleans Pelicans and could replace Buddy Heald relatively easily. I'm just trying to think of one more team where you could make a like real sensible case for Buddy Heald. It's not the easiest thing in the world, just given the money that he's owed, unfortunately. Correct. Um, and, and like the keys that I'm looking for, like I would be intrigued by Memphis on some level, like if you could do Justice Winslow and Kyle Anderson or something like that, because I think that his spacing is would be very helpful for the Grizzlies. And I think that Taylor Jenkins is a creative enough offensive mind to figure that out. But I also don't know that like Buddy Heald and John Morant is a defensive backcourt that I want anything well, to do with. Well, and they affirmatively traded for Justice Winslow and they're going to want to see yeah. how that works out before they do anything. Yeah, I think so, too. All right. Let's go to the last one here. Uh, this one is probably the most complicated this offseason, right? Yeah, I would say so. But it's also, in some ways, not complicated in terms of how you discuss it. Because, the Golden State Warriors we're talking about, by the way. Yes, because the Warriors, like, the, the, the larger point that isn't being discussed enough is how much is ownership willing to spend? Because yeah. the Warriors have significant tools to improve. They have a, a, a trade exception from the Andre Guadalla salary dump that is basically $17.2 million, and that expires early in the offseason. We don't have the exact dates yet because we don't know exactly the timing yet. They also have the number two pick in the draft. They also have numerous players under contract. Almost all, you know, like almost everybody is either in, in the hot. They only have one player. This is probably the better way to put it. They only have one player making between $2.1 million and $21 million on their entire roster, and that is Kevon Looney at 4.8. So it's so it's it's kind of hard for them to make a lot of things happen. So it, for the Warriors, so, so that's why the big thing to me is how much do they want to spend? Because if they use the Iguodala exception, if they use the mid-level exception, they could be a lot better because there are players, there are players available for both of those things. But that's when you start getting into the comically large luxury tax bills and especially if it's not fans for the whole time or everything else. Like I could see, 
I could see them not. I could see them not being like super hesitant, but being hesitant enough to not to not throw not go throw everything in right now. So the two big things that I keep wondering here for them are, and really, it's just it's all contingent upon this one thing: is when does the season start? Because I think that that is the number one question for them. What is the date of the season beginning? Because the further out we get, like the season begins in March, there's a real chance that this ownership group is going to be able to sell some regular season tickets potentially. And that makes their life a lot more easy from a financial perspective because they can sell tickets to the new Chase Center, which the prices, as I'm sure you're aware of being in the Bay, are just going to be exorbitant in terms of what they can charge. So that part of it makes an enormous difference here. If the season starts in January, which our own John Hollinger just wrote today, uh, January 18th is the target date right now. It becomes much less likely that they're going to be able to make millions upon millions of dollars from selling out the chase center next year. And that's where things get very difficult for them. They need to know as much as any team in the league when the season starts and what the number is for, essentially where they're going uh, for the future. They need to know what the cap number is and they need to know, are we going to be able to get fans into this arena? Yeah, that's a great point. And willingness to spend is a lot of complicated things. Also remember that the Warriors were able to duck the luxury tax for the 1920 season. So that might make them more open to getting a little bit more aggressive because they saved some in what ended up being a, a tough year. So I'm, I'm yep. interested in And they where all reset that goes. the luxury tax, too, which means they get to save more going forward. Yeah, and also that was benefited by the, the structure of everything with Kevin Durant. So, yeah, they're, they're in a pretty good place for a lot of that stuff, and they could also print money at Chase Center when fans are actually allowed in. Then you get into the big question that I think is, and this is more your wheelhouse than mine, <laughs> which is... You have so you have kind of a if you want to think about the flow chart for the number two pick, there are two different things that you have to think about. One is, well, how good of a player can we get at the number two pick? And then the other part is, how good of a player can we get with the number two pick if we trade it? And my thought is the second part is actually more important, and that if the if there just aren't that many teams that are interested, especially if if whomever is the most desired player, whether that's Ball or Anthony Edwards, I don't think it's going to be Wiseman. If that player is off the board, and because remember, the Warriors, I think, would love to make this pick before, to make the make a trade, if they're making a trade with this, before they're on the clock. But if nobody knows who what's happening at number one, then that's going to be harder too. Yeah, I think that both, I, I wrote this for Tuesday, but I, I think that both of these picks are on the market, uh, both number one and number two. Uh and obviously Minnesota's in the wheelhouse then to be able to do what they want to do because teams are obviously going to be more willing to move up to one and guarantee that they get the guy that they want. I'll preview what I have right now at number two. I have James Wiseman going number two, not because I think Golden State is going to be the team to take James Wiseman, but because I think Wiseman is currently the most likely player that a team would move up to get. Uh there are just a few teams down there from the five to 10 range. There are a few teams or maybe the three to 10 range, I should say. Um, they're, they're just, he's the guy that I think I feel most confident that teams feel safe going up to get. 
So even though he's a center, even though he plays a position that doesn't have a lot of value, like I, I went with Wiseman at two because I think the Warriors are going to move this pick, either trade it down or trade it out. I mean, is there a guy on the market that you could see them trying to trade in uh, if they do try to trade out of this draft? Because I think that that's the, that's the tricky thing. Like they could theoretically decide to use the trade exception on its own, which could bring in up to $17.2 million and then use this draft pick, which would be somewhere if they trade it down or keep it at number two, somewhere between let's say four and $8 million next year. So it could actually be a very big expenditure or they could decide to combine the two things use the number two pick and then combine that with the trade exception to trade in someone for $17.2 million. Is there a guy out there up to $17.2 million or there's a function which with which they could use like uh, a trade with Minnesota to, you know, move up and, you know, or not move up to acquire James Johnson and then the James Johnson. Step. Yeah. They use a stair step deal and they can acquire up to like 20 million. Is there a guy out there that makes sense in your mind? There isn't a great fit, but if you also acknowledge that the number two pick in this draft is not the number two pick in most drafts, the the player that stands out potentially to me is Miles Turner. I think that Turner, his ability to space the floor and defend makes sense with the Warriors. I mean, basically the idea would be that he can play with Draymond Green now, but then eventually he could not replace Draymond Green. The defense would have a completely different structure, but that he could occupy a similar defensive role and space the floor offensively. So then that, that could work out reasonably well. Turner is definitely interesting. And also there is a distinct chance that he is on the market because they also, that the, the Pacers also have an all-star center. And Sabonis, I don't, I still, even even though they were successful under Nate McMillan this past year, I still don't think that the Sabonis-Turner pairing long-term is necessary. I, I think it's possible. And so for them getting the number two pick, they could, I mean, Indiana could go in a number of different directions, but especially if they're not feeling particularly rosy about Victor Oladipo's future with the franchise, they could do a pretty full-scale timeline shift by moving Turner for let's say the, let's say it involves the number two pick and then they could theoretically do something with Oladipo as well and then they're looking at Brogdon Sabonis the number two pick and whatever they get for Oladipo or just keeping Oladipo because he's pretty young and working with that and so I think that Turner's one of the more interesting guys that could actually be on the market yeah if you want to throw out crazy names you can throw out crazy names but I think that it's it's going to be something more like that. I, I don't think that these pieces are coming together in like a Giannis deal, for example. If they want to go out and try and, and this is something that you've talked about with me before. I'm wondering if there's a world where someone like a younger player, like a Derek white, like, is there a world where the warriors could do, we'll move down from number two to number 11 and the Spurs decide, you know, we've already paid DeJounte Murray. We don't know if we want to pay Derek White long term. Can they use the trade exception to do that? I mean, really, you might sure. not even have to use the trade exception to do that. You might be able to, like, just move off of someone like Jordan Poole in that deal. Uh, because Derek White doesn't make a ton of money, right? And then you could keep the trade exception valuable. Uh, but I wonder if there's something like that out there. Like a younger player that 
you know, maybe isn't being talked about because he isn't in like the 10 to $15 million price range. In a different world, Jonathan Isaac would have been a fascinating question there. I mean, Isaac, I love his defensive potential, but he's out for presumably all of next season. So he's, he's off the table there. That's the type of guy that I think the conversation would have, would have been around. They're just, I, I just don't think they're that it's such a hard area to have somebody who is simultaneously worthy of giving up the number two pick, but also available. Because generally speaking, players who are that good, the teams want to keep them around. And so I don't I don't have a ton of great fits there. Derek White's an interesting one, but there aren't there aren't that many that are just like, oh yeah, okay, that that makes some real sense. What else do we need to know about the Warriors offseason this year? Well, we'll we we'll get a better understanding of what Andrew Wiggins' place is within the franchise. I mean, so the deal that they, the deal that the Warriors did with Minnesota, there were a couple of different rationales for it, just like there were for the D'Angelo Russell trade. And I was actually working on a piece going through that when they made the D'Angelo Russell trade. I thought I was going to have more time. I also got sidetracked. But with Wiggins, you could make the argument they did that deal because they didn't love Russell. They wanted to kind of strike while the iron was still hot with Minnesota, and they got the pick that they got from Minnesota. I, and it's interesting to see how this changes based on what Gerson Rosas does at with their with the number one pick. Is so the pick that Minnesota sent them in the Wiggins D'Angelo Russell deal to get let people know about it. It's one to three protected next year and then unprotected in 2022. It is the most valuable owed pick out beyond 2020 in the entire NBA. That doesn't make it super valuable. It just means it's the most valuable. There aren't a ton of crazy ones. This isn't like those picks that Danny Ainge stole from the Brooklyn Nets or then the New Jersey Nets. Like it's not that type of a situation. Um, but so with Wiggins, you could make an argument that that he was just kind of a bystander in the deal. But you could also make an argument that the Warriors saw untapped potential in him. That making him a smaller fish in a bigger pond could engage him more defensively. That it can make him a more efficient offensive player and. We'll probably get an answer to that question, just basically whether he's moved or not, and whether the Warriors kind of add players that go over him, and that adds to the like the the things to track. The single most ridiculous, but my favorite possibility with their trade exception, is that the Andre Iguodala trade exception is legally allowed to be used on Andre Iguodala. That'd be pretty because funny. Iguodala, Iguodala signed that extension with Miami, and he so. It's entirely possible, especially given his role within within the Heat's success, that Miami would rather have Iguodala than not, and losing his $15 million doesn't really probably make things too much more flexible, especially if Miami wants to be in the 2021 Derby. But maybe Iguodala, you know, maybe he wants to stay in Miami, but maybe he would like to go back. It's not entirely his choice, but also for the Warriors, the avoiding the risk of wondering whether this guy is going to fit in is a huge benefit. And so the other hilarious part about that is that it would honestly in many ways be the best of all worlds for Iguodala individually because he was traded by the Warriors, got to sit out half a season, then got to be on a contender, who a, a, a surprise contender, who gave him an extension, all while the Warriors were crap the entire year. So he, and he actually spent a large portion of the season still living in the Bay Area. So I, I think that it is a possibility. I think Miami would rather have him than have a $15 million trade exception, but I am not 
rock, rock solid on that when you consider that Iguodala is coming off the bench, would pretty much always do that, and isn't reliably in their, their closing five either. Yeah, I'm pretty intrigued by all of those options as well. Uh, ultimately, the, the 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 reason that I haven't written the Golden State offseason preview yet is because I'm waiting to see where the cap fits in. I'm waiting to see uh, when the season starts, because I think that that is just going to tell the tale of everything that they do this summer to the point where it's just really hard to project beyond that right now. Uh, Danny, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people uh, what's going on. My written work is at The Athletic. Uh, podcasts, Real GM Radio is is the show that I do with Real GM. Sam is a frequent guest on that. Uh, Dunked On is now split. There's the public episode, which comes out Sunday nights and Monday mornings once a week. And then we do Dunked On Prime, which is subscription service where you get everything else that we do, which is a lot of content. As We, go, we still go full-time most of the off-season. Um, and then... We're not going to be doing the NBA cast for a while, but we also do live shows. So there are a lot of different ways you can hear my voice if for some reason that's something you want to do. Go follow Danny over at Danny LaRue on Twitter. Uh, I will have a mock draft coming on Tuesday morning uh, in the U.S. So uh, keep it locked for that. And I'll be back with two more episodes this week just because uh, I was only able to record one last week. So until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye.